Turn to John chapter 3. John's purpose in writing was to convince unbelievers to believe in Jesus. He said so right at the end of the book. These things are written so that, purpose clause, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. My premise is that not only is he writing to unbelievers, but he's writing specifically to Jewish unbelievers who don't live in Palestine. Because he's always having to explain the geographical features of the Holy Land, so they don't live there. But he assumes they knew the Old Testament, so they're probably not just raw pagan Gentiles like our ancestors up in Germany or Africa or wherever they were. So we're talking to Jewish people who have heard about Jesus, and it wasn't good. Most people had rejected him, the rulers had rejected him, and the Romans had killed him as a revolutionary. So we got a PR problem here. So John's writing to correct that. I want you to think about, well, how is this stuff today help that process along? How would this help a Jewish person to believe in Jesus? That's the whole goal of it. And so that's what we need to consider. Gerald and I go into a conference today, and there'll be a lot of preaching there. And I go to a lot of conferences, and I don't ever go to any of the preaching. I just don't want to hear one more sermon. I mean, I'm just there, okay? Uh, probably something wrong with me. But the point is, with me, I feel like a lot of these guys are like medics on a battlefield. They're just going around plugging up wounds. You need that. But that's what we've done for the last 1,500 years in church. And we're just not producing people with critical thinking skills. It's just giving people fish instead of teaching them how to fish. So as I said last time, I thought, I got nothing to say today. John does. And I don't want to tell you what John says. I want you to figure it out. All right, let's develop critical thinking skills. So here we have this interview between Jesus and the only Irishman in the Bible, Nick Odemus. Uh-huh. Is anybody here of Irish descent? Okay, Robert. I'll suck at Robert first. Robert, I'll read it so it gets recorded, but Robert's going to be thinking about what happened here that just causes this guy to marvel. So that's your question, Robert. Y'all can be imagining whether he answers right or not. So there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay, Robert from Ireland. What did Jesus say that caused this guy to marvel? Why is that a problem? He didn't get it. That's right. So Luke records Jesus saying, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So Jesus said, unless you're born again, the first thing he says is you can't see the kingdom of God. So it's around us all now, right now, all around us. But you don't perceive it with spiritual eyes unless you've been born again. You can't even see it. 
And later on, he says you can't enter it, which is pretty much saying the same thing. Now, so this is a shock to Nicodemus, though, not only because he don't know what he's talking about, but what more is there to shock Nicodemus that Jesus would say, whatever this born-again thing is, you can't even see God's kingdom without it. Why would that be a shock to Nicodemus, of all people? Who was he? He was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. So somehow he's missed this one. They had this thinking that if you were Jewish, that was enough. You were saved by birth, ethnic birth. Unless now if some Jew became an apostate or a murderer, okay, he won't make it. But any Jew is going to make it, especially if you're a guy like Nicodemus. And then for Jesus to say this, that kind of strips his gears. But if you remember, that goes all the way back. Abraham, it says he believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. Had nothing to do with the fact that he was chosen to be the father of the Hebrew race. He believed God. And that's been the consistent message. It's not about birth and it's not about keeping the law of Moses. It's about Abraham's example by faith. So he says he was a Pharisee, just to remind you of those guys. They were Jewish laymen. That suggests Nicodemus was a layman. They were very zealous for keeping the law. That's what they were known for. But they were also, according to Jesus, on a large part, hypocrites. Jesus said, woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But they weren't all bad guys. Paul was a Pharisee. And we learn from Luke and Acts that many Pharisees believed in Jesus after Pentecost. So that's good. Now, it also says Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. How is that different than being a Pharisee? Thank you. He's a member of the Sanhedrin ruling council. And that's like being on the Supreme Court kind of in that sense. That's a big deal. He's a big man in Judaism. So according to verse 2, let's think about things. You know, this is not just a bunch of stuff that happens. Why does John bother to spill ink on very expensive papyrus to tell us that Jesus was approached by Nicodemus at night. Okay, there we go. You're right there at it. Undercover at night. That's right. But now he says, we know. We, look at that in verse 2. We know. Who's we? Hmm. Could be the Sanhedrin knew it, and they weren't going to accept it. Could be there's other Pharisees that knew it, because some of them got saved later. Could be just a cover. We. Who's we? (laughs) We. (laughs) I don't know. That's interesting. But yeah, on the whole, it's not real popular to come out in favor of Jesus. So it suggests he wants to come at night where he's not going to get criticized or made fun of or something like that. Now, what does he conclude about Jesus? Based on verse 3, give me some words. What does he believe about Jesus? Okay. He's a teacher from God. What else? He does miracles. God is with him. And he does call him rabbi. He's not really a rabbi in their traditional sense, but he's showing him honor by saying that. Now, you think he's just blowing smoke here? Is this a trick? Not since he's coming at night, probably. And we know as this John's gospel develops, It looks like he becomes a believer. He stands up for Jesus in the Sanhedrin. He spends a whole lot of money on spices for the burial, claims the body. So, yeah, we think he's probably sincere in this. So what was it, according to verse 2, that convinced 
Nicodemus that Jesus was a teacher who had come from God. Yeah, these signs and these miracles, that's what did it. What's interesting is you go back in the previous chapter, look at verse 23 in chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Now, this is what Nicodemus did, right? But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. They believed in Jesus. He didn't believe in them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. So I think even though Nicodemus has a degree of faith, it wasn't enough, and Jesus knew it. And so since he can read minds, <laughs> since he's God, he blows Nicodemus out of the water, so to speak, with this born-again stuff, which is exactly what he needed to hear. So he wasn't there yet. He's heading in the right direction, but I don't think he's there yet. So you have to ask from a literary perspective, how does that last paragraph in chapter 2, how is that a setup for chapter 3? Well, I think here's the setup. Here's a guy who believed in Jesus because of the miracles, but Jesus didn't believe in him yet. Glad he came. This is good stuff, but he's not there yet. Okay, so Robert pointed out that Nicodemus compliments Jesus, and like a lightning bolt out of the blue, bang, he says, you got to be born again. Is there any logic here at all? Is this in any way a logical response to this compliment? Yeah. It is a logical response. What do you mean? So John's already given us a setup. You've got to be born by God. And now we have it repeated here. So it's logical with what John has written. Is it logical with what Nicodemus has now said? By the way, this is, this is shorthand. Who knows? They might have talked 20 minutes before this happened or between these two statements. But I've just got to work with what I've got to work with. He said that Jesus, Jesus knew what was in his heart. And what Nicodemus was thinking is that, well, I've honored you as rabbi, so we're on par now together. In other words, I, I, already, I already know what we're rabbis. And you, we've talked about this among the Sanhedrin mm -hmm. or rabbis. Mm -hmm. And we all know. So, in other words, nothing is hidden from us. It's not a mystery to us. But then Jesus takes and hits him with a hammer. He makes a mystery out of he it. Out of it. <laughs> well, yeah, now they're, they're saying, does Jesus measure up? And he's really saying, you don't measure up. Right. And two, he's saying, you could look at it this way. He's saying, we know your teacher come from God. And he says, well, let me tell you how to get to God. Mm. I come from there. Let me tell you about it. Could be that. So now he's frustrated, as we all know, Nicodemus is, not Jesus. In verse 4, what's this frustration he expresses in verse 4? Yeah, it's just, he's thinking physical, obviously. So then Jesus explains the second birth in verse 5 and 6. Maybe we can figure this out. He says, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He explains it. You explain it. Help me understand what he's saying here. Now, it's true that up to this point, we've been in already, if we, you know, I, I mean, I read ahead, I know. We've been talking about John the Baptist, and he's a big deal. He's witnessing to the light, and his was a baptism of repentance. So in that thinking, Jesus said, okay, you need to repent, but that's not enough. What else you got to do? What's the other step there? The Spirit. the Spirit. What does that mean? What about the Holy Spirit? 
Okay, let's uh, Spirit is the Holy Spirit. Well, it's one thing. Repentance is something you do. Okay. So a lot of people yep. thinking that to see, to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to repent and be born of the Spirit, which he's going to explain some more in just a minute. Now, what if he doesn't mean that? What else could he mean? Leif, you got something else? Well, yeah, so in other words, the born of water could be your natural birth. The born of the Spirit is your spiritual birth. In verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. It seems to parallel flesh with water. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit. So now it, it could be either one. It could be what Joel's thinking. It could be what you're thinking. Who knows? That's all I've got right here. But the point is, it's not enough to be Jewish. It's not enough to keep the law. And... In fact, if you could just go by this, it's not enough to repent. Right. Judas repented. Yeah, but that repentance has got to be granted by God. Well, there's another verse that says that. Yeah. So this word for spirit in verse 5 and 6 is pneuma, as in pneumonia or pneumatic. And it can mean wind or breath or spirit. It can mean ghost even. But our translators thought it refers to the... Holy Ghost, because they put a capital S there. They've interpreted that a little for us. But there's a play on words coming up. Now, if you're out doing the great exchange, and in the unlikely event that a student comes up to you and says, how can I be born again? What would you say? Well, I would say some combination of what you guys are saying. I say, we got to believe in Jesus when you say that, right? What's kind of disappointing is that's not what Jesus said. If you go back at verse 7, okay, based on what Jesus said here, what reaction is Nicodemus experiencing? Ooh. Marvel. Marvel. That means, I looked it up somewhere. I mean, where did that Marvel is a comic book. That's right. Oh, it means to be filled with wonder or astonishment. So he's not tracking with Jesus very well. So he's asking him how to be born again, basically. What does this mean? How do I do that? And Jesus explains it in a way that I never would. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What kind of an unhelpful answer is that? So, Ben, let me just say, if we're at the Great Exchange and you say that, I'm going to tell you that you need to say something else. <laughs> there is a play on words here. Like I said, pneuma means spirit or wind. So he's playing with those words. But somehow being born again is similar to the characteristics of the wind. So what do we learn about the wind here from this verse 8? What's one thing he says about the wind? Okay, you hear it, but you can't see it. And what did somebody say over here? Bill was. You can't explain it. You don't know why is it blowing, where did it come from, where did it go? You're not in control over it. So you don't have control of it. You can hear it, but you can't see it. You don't know where it comes from or where it went. But you can see what it does. But you can see what it does. That's right. Now, there's a lot of things Jesus said I don't like. 
but this is what he's saying. There's this great mystery here. Can anybody believe? No. No. Thank you. Okay. Yes. And these people in chapter two all believed. Okay. Thank you. What I'm asking is people think, well, I've gotten got time for Jesus right now. I'll go sow my wild oats and maybe later I'll believe in the little Lord Jesus. Anyhow, I would say if somebody asks how to be born again, of course I talk about you got to believe in Jesus. But there's more to it than that that's beneath the surface that you don't see. So let's go back to that verse that Parker read. In John chapter 1, it says, To all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Absolutely. Who were born, past tense, not of blood or the will of flesh or will of man, but of God. Those who believe were born of God, this Holy Spirit birth thing. So the question is, how deeply has sin messed us up? That's the question. Now, you can believe like these other people did, but that doesn't mean it's a saving faith. The devil believes, but you're not going to see him in heaven. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person, now that would be each of us before we got saved, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Every time you go on campus and witness, your success rate's going to be zero. They are not going to accept it, for it's folly to him, and he's not able to understand these things. Here's another one, Romans 8. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Would it please God for you to believe in Jesus and get saved? Yeah. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. John 10, 26. Look what Jesus said. Talking to the Pharisees. You do not believe because, here it comes, you are not my sheep. Now, are you a sheep because you believe? Or do you believe because you're a sheep? Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? You see, we got evangelism problem here. How does anybody ever get saved? It's got something to do with the wind, folks. <laughs> so there is a mystery there. We are to preach the gospel and explain it to the best we can. But unless the Holy Spirit's on the other side, ain't nothing going to happen. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, that's this whole thing. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. That's not really true. If you salt the oats, he'll drink that water. Morning. God's got to salt the oaks. That's the point. Yeah. Well, that's the question. What comes first? Yeah. Are you born again because you believed? Or do you believe because you were born again? You see, based on this. Now, faith comes in here, but based on this so far, Jesus isn't talking about faith. <laughs> He's talking about this wind stuff. Now, there's an English pastor back in the 1700s named John Gill, and it was so long ago when he wrote it now that it has to be true. He said, (laughs) he said this, he was writing about this. He said, the spirit of God is a free agent in regeneration. He works how and where and when he pleases. He acts freely in the first operation of his grace on the heart and in all after influences of it. And this grace of the Spirit in regeneration, like the wind, 
It's powerful and irresistible. It carries all before it. There is no withstanding it. It throws down Satan's strongholds, demolishes the fortifications of sin, the whole posse of hell, and the corruptions of man's heart are not a match for it. So, okay, well, now, happily, Jesus didn't stop there. He keeps going. So let's go back to John chapter 3. Jesus now is going to tell you which people have eternal life. That's what we're going to find out. So, Sean, you're on the front row. Read 9 through 14. That's one paragraph. Who has eternal life according to this? Go ahead. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, aside from all the stuff you might not understand in that, what you can understand is who has eternal life. Who has eternal life? That's right. When the wind blows, you see its effects. When the wind blows, people believe in Jesus in a way that they get eternal life. And they change. I even say they repent. They become holy. They're not like they used to be. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. New things have come. That's what it says. So that's the good news. I would argue, and you can disagree with me if you want to, but I would argue that believing in Jesus is the result of being born again. And that's, and that's why he starts talking about that in this next paragraph. Now, Paul Nicodemus is confused. What's the confusion expressed in verse 9? Well, we're back to that. How can these things be? It's just like, wow. So there's a joke. Why does one Jew always answer another Jew with a question? Why not? <laughs> Nicodemus asks a question. And what does Jesus do? He answers it with a question. And these two Jews are talking. All right. So Nicodemus, how can these things be? Jesus, are you the, te the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Now, what statement is Jesus making in that question? <laughs> you, you just don't get it, do you? <laughs> yeah, this is a subtle rebuke. You know, He's feeling like there's enough of this in the Old Testament. Nicodemus should have been aware of it. And I think it goes back to this thing about Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. So look at verse 11. What fundamental problem did Jesus point out in verse 11? The problem in verse 11 is what? Unbelief. They didn't receive what he said. John chapter 3, verse 32, later in this chapter, it says, Jesus bears witness, yet no one receives his testimony. Now, notice back to verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. Who's we? Could be Jesus and John, Jesus and Holy Spirit and God the Father. John the writer wrote about John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe 
through him. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize, that would be the father with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. So we got a lot of witnesses going on here. Now, confusing though, back to verse two, Nicodemus said all this nice stuff about Jesus. It sounds like he receives the testimony of Jesus. So why is Jesus not telling him, you do not receive the testimony? Well, did he did or did he not did? What do you think? Okay. All right. Now, but notice, there's one of the, I think this, that's right, but there's one other thing here about pronouns we're going to look at after Greg goes here. I think he's on to something here. We is plural. You in English, you can't tell what it is. But the Greek word here is y'all. Okay? <laughs> so, uh, all y'all. <laughs> and for you Yankees here, that's plural for you. All right. So evidently, the first time he says you, it is you are a teacher of Israel. That's singular. Every other you in there is plural in this verse and the next one. So I think he shifts to Nicodemus as a representative of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus wasn't so bad. These guys absolutely just rejected it. The rest of the we that he represents. Yeah, it looks like that to me. So this also could be the same we when Nicodemus mentioned that. We know that you are. Well, who are you talking about? We. So he just wheezed back at him. <laughs> or, well, he wheezed here and he all's there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought of that. Yeah. Okay. Now, let's see. Verse 12. If I have told you earthly things that you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What's the answer to the question? You can't. Right. To state the obvious, if I say to you, to fill a flat tire, you got to put air in it, and you don't believe that, and that can be proven. Why would you believe if I told you about something in heaven that can't be proven? So that's kind of where he's going with this. But the question is, these earthly things, everybody believes in natural birth and flesh and literal water. My thinking, I might be wrong, that the earthly things he's talking about is being born again, because it happens on earth. It happens in time on earth. There's a day... You're born again, and the day before that, you weren't. It happens on earth. Heavenly things is what's going to happen when the kingdom comes. Not in the sense the kingdom's here now, but the kingdom is coming. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. That it's not done right now on earth, right? So something's going to change when Jesus comes back. In other words, he says, if you don't believe what I'm telling you about being born again now on earth, how are you going to believe what I'm going to tell you about what's going on in heaven? I think that's the thought here. So obviously... What he's saying here, look at verse 13. According to verse 13, what qualifies Jesus to speak about heavenly things? Well, that's where he came from. That's the point. Now, this thing about ascension and descension and all that's a little muddled. But it does say, and back to John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus started out in heaven. And he came to earth. You know, he never ascended. He was always there. <laughs> but he did descend in the form of a man. I think, I didn't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I think the idea is a lot of people in the Old Testament 
ascended into heaven, right? Moses just went up. Elijah went up. Enoch just went up. But they never came back and told us anything, all right? Now, they know, but they're not saying. But Jesus, he started out up there. Now he has come. So he's got the authority to speak about heaven, and you should listen to him. So the way he describes himself, he talks about he descended from heaven, the son of man. What's the significance of that title from a Jewish perspective? Okay, it is messianic. So he's claiming to be the Messiah right here. Perhaps one of the most famous passages about that is what Daniel wrote. He said, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So he's been talking about you want to see the kingdom, you want to enter the kingdom. I know all about it. I'm the king. Here's what I got to say. Then he talks about Moses lifting up a model of a snake on a stick. So Moses takes bronze or something and he makes a snake out of it and he ties it to a stick and he holds it up. I always wanted to get one of those you know those pharmacy symbols? It's a snake on a stick. I always wanted one of those. All churches have crosses. I wanted to put a snake on a stick out front. And make people, what's that? Make a mask. Well, that's, anyway. Now, first let's talk about Moses and the snake on a stick. What was that about? Getting by poisonous snakes as an act of judgment. And God says, okay, a stick. And what happens? If what? You got to look at it. All right. Now, somehow that's got something to do with Jesus. Verse 14. What's the parallel with Jesus? He got raised up on a stick. He did. And everybody who looks to him will be spiritually healed. So what happened with Moses was typological of what was going to happen with Jesus. He was also, the Bible talks about him being lifted up from the grave and ascended into heaven. So it's two senses in which he's lifted up. But John chapter 6, verse 40, this is will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes should have eternal life. So that's right. So let's go back to verse 9. How can these things be? The answer is in verse 15. Whoever believes has eternal life. Now I know that. If you believe in Jesus, not like the people in chapter 2, but... <laughs> What Jesus is talking about here, you've you got eternal life. That's how you can tell. Now, chapter 16 through 21, Jesus tells why wicked people hate the light. We're going to find out. So, Dwayne, I'm going to get you to read it. 16 to 21. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen 
that his works have been carried out in God. Why is it wicked people hate light? Exposes their evil deeds. That's right. Speaking of the religious leaders of Judaism, Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is you are not of God. All right. So that's the big picture. Now, go back to verse 16 and 17, famous verses. How does God show his love for the world? How did God do that? He sent his only son that those who believe would have eternal life. Now, the Greek word so there shows you not only how much God loves us, but the way in which God loved the world. How much? He sent his son the way he did it. He died on the cross, right? So, but the world, we got to look at this word world. What do you think Jesus meant by world? God so loved the world. First, I'll give you a hint. He's not talking about the dirt ball. What are my options about what he meant? Okay, one is everybody. So everybody without exception. Hitler, Mao, Stalin, and your crazy, wicked, evil aunt, the witch. Everybody. What's the other option? Not just the That's good. Not just Jews. I want you said that. So how would you tell which one it is? Well, we need to look at how John, the author, has used the word world throughout his whole thing. And so we're at a disadvantage because we just parachuted into this chapter. But I would argue that here, at least, when he says world, he means Gentiles too, not just Jews. They're thinking, I'm Jewish, I'm saved, just because I'm Jewish. In fact, we're the only people who are going to be saved. Everybody else is a dog. John's saying, no, God's purpose all along has been not just Jews, Gentiles too. And so, for example, look at this contrast between what John's going to write between the word world and the Jews. He, Jesus, was in the world, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. There's a contrast between the world and his own people. Who are his own people? The Jews. Who's the world? Not the Jews. So basically, you're a Jewish person, you're in a synagogue. You don't believe in Jesus. Gentiles are dogs. And now you're reading that the whole purpose of God sending the Messiah was to save not just Jews, but non-Jews too. This is a big deal. Well, so there's two ways to look at that. God loved all people without exception. That's number one. Or all people without distinction. So in other words, you said God predestines and elects people. Well, if that's what it takes to be saved, then he doesn't love everybody without exception. He only loves some people without distinction. In other words, he even elects Gentiles to believe in Jesus. If you would say that the reason you're born again is because you believe, then you would want this to mean God loves everybody without exception. But if you believe that the reason you believe is because you were born again, then you would tend to say God loves everybody without distinction, that he even has his elect among 
non-Jewish people. That's it. So God so loved the world that he did this with Jesus. Now, if you're a believer, you're a son of God. In what sense is Jesus the only son of God? Okay, it means one of a kind or unique. The Greek word is monogenes, only begotten, literally, but it's, the emphasis is not, he, he was never begotten. He's always existed, right? This same word is used of Abraham. Remember that song, Father Abraham had many sons. How many sons did he have? Many sons had five. But in Hebrew it says he only had one son. Who? Isaac. I know Jesus is normally the right answer around here, but this time it's Isaac. Okay, so Isaac was his unique son of promise. It's the only son of the miracle birth of promise was Isaac. And so, too, Jesus is the only Messiah, God in human form, came from heaven to tell us what it's about. That's what he's talking about. Look at verse 18. It says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only Son of God. Well, just a minute ago, or he's going to say, look at verse 17, he didn't send his Son to the world to condemn the world. He didn't need to. The world's already condemned. You see what I'm saying? See how that goes together? He's explaining that. People love the darkness rather than the light. Now, what does the light represent? It's Jesus himself. It's Jesus, yeah. So in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 9, 5, I am the light of the world. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now look at verse 21. What kind of people come into the light? Or what does it say? Whoever does what is true. Right. And so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been, it says, carried out in God. The NIV says done through God. Same idea. Now that sounds very much like you have something to do with it, doesn't it? So this is a mystery here. We're playing both sides of the fence. Jason? Mm-hmm. Well, the ESV people think it's Jesus because it's in quotation marks. You'll notice they end the quotations in verse 22. But a lot of people think verse 16 and following is John's commentary on what they'd been discussing. Jesus always refers to himself as the son of man, not the son of God. And here we switch over him being the son of God. So that's one of the reasons they think John wrote this. Not that Jesus said it. Now, remember in the Greek, there are no quotation marks. Y'all see that? So let's stop just a minute and get the big picture here. Why did John write this book? So he wants people to believe in Jesus. Now, the application for us all here today is you must be born again. Our existence is unending. You're going to exist somewhere forever, either in heaven or in hell. And it's been said if you're only born once, physically, you'll die twice, physically and spiritually. But if you're born twice, you'll only die once. And Revelation chapter 21 says, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and your evil and the witch, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. On the other hand, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now let's go back. How does this stuff that John wrote about what happened with Nicodemus, how would that help 
an unbelieving Jew living somewhere in the Roman Empire start to be persuaded to believe in Jesus? Okay, well, now let's think about this. A stumbling block to a lot of Jews is that so many Gentiles were getting saved. And now he's explaining this was the plan all along. So the Jews were as prejudiced against Gentiles as the Nazis were against the Jews. All the persecution of the church came from the Jews in the first century. There wasn't a united front among Pharisees as they would want everybody to believe. Now, you've said we've removed one stumbling block. It's God's purpose all along to start to bring Gentiles into this thing. Now, you've said, wait a minute. The Sanhedrin wasn't monolithic in their beliefs. Here's a guy that's a Sanhedrin that did believe in Jesus. Okay, there's some cracks in it. By the way, going back to what Luke said, this is a little bit beyond John, but it says there is a remnant of Jewish people chosen by grace. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, and the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears would not hear, down to this very day. So this Holy Spirit is the wind, and he blows, and part of God's plan is that the Jews would reject Jesus so that the gospel would go to the Gentiles, which was his plan along. But there's always a remnant who will believe, and... Even to this day, that is the case. And many of these Pharisees and even a guy in the Sanhedrin did believe. And it's not so easy to believe. You've got to be born from above. How much control do you have over the wind? None. How much control do you have over being born again? None. He's explaining why is it so many Jewish people don't believe in Jesus. Well, he's giving you some reasons here. And he says later in the book, the reason the Sanhedrin didn't believe in Jesus is because their own deeds were evil. Their father was the devil. That's what he said. So he's given a theological framework to this terrible thing that happened when they killed Jesus. It was not a failure. It's the reason he came. Just like Moses was lifted up in the wilderness, the Son of Man had to be lifted up. Now, we've just taken one slice out of a 21-chapter book. So this by itself perhaps would not be convincing, but by the time a person studied through the whole book, well, that's another story. In fact, one of the things we do at The Great Exchange is we give kids the 21-day challenge. There's 21 chapters in John's Gospel. We ask them to read a chapter a day, 21 days, and with two simple questions based on that chapter. Who's Jesus? He's God. What does he want from you? To believe. And that's why John wrote this book. Okay, questions, comments? Snide remarks, insinuations. Okay. Well, fun. Along those same lines, right? With the other verses in Romans, it says that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law and the like. Righteousness by faith. So. All right. So when you read the Bible, say things like, "Why do I need to know He came at night?" Why is it significant he was a Pharisee and in the ruling council? How does this contribute to John's stated purpose in writing? Try to figure those kind of things out. And if there's stuff you don't understand, like he who ascended and he who descended and... Uh, okay, point is, Jesus came from heaven and he knows what he's talking about. You, know, you don't get tripped up on the little stuff. Remember, there's options for what he could mean, like water. Oh, maybe it's John the Baptist's repentance. Oh, well, maybe that's natural birth. There's another option some people put forward I didn't even deal with, but 
Consider your options. Use your brain. Don't simply read the Bible devotionally. It's been said you don't want to have an uh, untheological devotion, but neither do you want an undevotional theology. It takes both. One of these days, you might move to, who knows, Moscow, Idaho, and can't find a good church you like out there, and you just have to read the Bible on your own and understand it. That's what we're supposed to be helping you all to do. All right, well, let's do the Lord's Supper now. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.